0: So we're going to do a flyby over the book of Jonah. Um, It's actually really helpful to change altitudes sometimes in our um, study of scripture because there are things that you can see from a bird's eye view or in a helicopter that you can't see on the ground, right? And there's things when you're walking along slowly and you're inspecting things, you know, close up on the ground beneath your feet that you can't see from the helicopter. So both of those are helpful. Today's a flyby. And so one way to summarize the book of Jonah in a sentence or in a, in a phrase is sovereign mercy on mission to the merciless. So that's this book in a nutshell. So we'll see God's sovereignty. So sovereign, you see it there, sovereign mercy on, mercy to the, on mission to the merciless, um, see God's sovereignty, but not just His sovereignty in the sense of some display of raw power, though certainly God does that, but sovereignty in the service of His mercy and His mercy to the merciless. Okay, We'll also see irony. I'm just giving you a summary of the points where we're headed this morning. Um, We're going to see a bunch of irony in the book of, of Jonah, and not just, oh, Look at this literary device, so creatively employed in this excellent piece of ancient literature, okay? Not that, but irony expertly employed in the service of showing the mercy of God over the mercilessness of his prophet. So the function of that irony is that it's exposing, it's revealing irony. So again, it's got a point. We're also going to see mercy, God's mercy, sovereign and relentless, his mercy to the merciless pagan mariners, pagans in Nineveh, and then also mercy to the merciless, rebellious, self-righteous prophet. And then finally, we're going to see God's mission and ours. So I'm going to begin, actually, by reading the whole book. I know it's going to take, it's going to take like eight minutes or so, something like that. Um, but guess what? These inspired words are more important and powerful than any words I've got to say today. So um, really encourage you to engage. This is just such a powerful little book, and this is the most important part of our time, these next eight minutes. One thing I'm going to mention is I'm going to read Yahweh in each place where Lord, in, in all caps, is, is in your translation probably, and there's a reason why I'm going to do that. I've mentioned it before, but I'm going to remind you again. Um, I'll let Alec Motir, Old Testament scholar, summarize it. He says, The divine name Yahweh will at first sound strange in your ears, being used to the established but mistaken English convention of representing the name as the Lord. So it was a new intimacy and privilege when the significance of that name revealed to Moses, Exodus 3. A totally false sense of reverence later said, the name is too holy for us to use. And the custom was introduced of representing it as the Lord. No, no. He has granted us the privilege and we should learn to live in the benefit of it. Hebrew has two main nouns for God, Elohim and El, but there's only one name. God is what He is. Yahweh is who He is. Okay? So Yahweh is His name, not a title. Lord is a title, right? And He is Lord, most certainly, but He wants us to know His name and call him by name, the I am who I am, Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is who he is, and he wants you and me to know who he is and to address him personally because we can have a personal relationship with him through Christ. All right, let's read Jonah. What page is it on? Is it in here? Anybody have it? Jonah, Micah, 7 what? 774. If you're using the uh, Pew Bible, it's, it's on page 774. Okay, ready? Now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. So I will give... Just a few brief little comments as we go along, just so that you're oriented to things. Israel here, Nineveh would have been 500 or so miles northeast of Israel. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, it's in Assyria, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. It's the opposite direction, west of the Mediterranean, a long way away. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Note all those action verbs. He's got to do a lot to run away. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. So we're wondering, is this judgment? Is God going to destroy Jonah? And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper, arise? Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? Of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to Yahweh, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh, and made vows. And the Lord and Yahweh appointed a great fish. Now don't get hung up here. It's a general word for an aquatic beast. Don't do this like, well, the whale's not technically a fish. it's a general word, okay? To swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to Yahweh, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to Yahweh out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Yahweh my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered Yahweh, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And Yahweh spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of of Yahweh came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of Yahweh. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Echoes of Sodom and Gomorrah type language. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Symbol of repentance and mourning over their sin. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Literally, it was a very great evil in the eyes of Jonah, and he burned with anger. And he prayed to Yahweh and said, Oh, Yahweh, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Yahweh, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And Yahweh said, Do you do well to be angry? Now notice that Jonah doesn't answer in words that question. He answers it in deed. And then God doesn't answer in word. He also answers in deed. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. He's hoping for fire and brimstone. Now Yahweh God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad. Does that sound familiar? He was exceedingly angry and displeased in one for one. Now he's exceedingly glad because of some shade, because of the plant. So Jonah answered in word. Now God's going to answer in word. And Yahweh said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? That actually is a really big city in the ancient Near East, as opposed to what we know as big cities today. It's God's Word. So, what we're going to do is look at four important themes. And again, it's just a flyby. We're not going to overturn every rock here, but we're going to consider sovereignty. You'll see these points in the Bulletin, if you want to follow along that way, or the slides will be up here. Sovereignty, irony, mercy, and mission. So first off, sovereignty. Did you note the sovereignty of God that's highlighted throughout the book? Did you see it? So God hurled a great wind, a mighty tempest on the sea in chapter 1, verse 4. Where's God in chapter 1? He's in the storm. And this sovereignty has a point he loves to interrupt our rebellion. So, are any of you running? Are you running from God? Jonah was a prophet, folks. Like, running is not just for, you know, weak, immature people. We're all susceptible to this. We're all prone to wander. In fact, the only other place we find Jonah's name in the Old Testament is 2 Kings 14, 25. You don't have to turn there, but he's commended as a servant of God. Okay, so none of us, no matter how long you've been a Christian, is immune from rebellion and running. And oftentimes, don't we do this? We justify our running, or we try to quiet our guilty conscience when the Lord is calling us to to an obedience that we don't like, a hard obedience, we justify or try to quiet that pang of conscience on the basis of our obedience in other areas. But this book is testimony to the fact that it's still rebellion. In fact, that's probably the most important place you need to trust the Lord. So previously faithful Jonah, when God calls him to an obedience that he doesn't like, he runs the other way. And this book is showing us what God thinks of that. And it's showing us the kind of God who deals with rebels like us, like you and me. So this storm was actually intended to rescue Jonah, even though he deserved for it to wipe him out. It was intended to rescue him and bring him to repentance. So is there a storm in your life? You might think God's punishing you. And he might be. But if he is, if you're a believer, he's punishing you in a Hebrews 12 sort of way. God disciplines those he loves. He wants to rescue you from yourself and bring you to repentance. He loves us enough to interrupt our rebellion. So there's a point to this sovereignty. More sovereignty in Jonah. Look at seven. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Remember Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. There is no such thing as luck in a universe where a sovereign God is on the throne. Okay? Did you notice all the places where God appointed things? One seventeen: Yahweh appoints a great fish. Is that for judgment? No, it's rescue. It's mercy. 4.6, he appoints a plant. To save him from his discomfort. 4 7, the worm. Again, God's going to expose Jonah's heart here and then this scorching wind. So there's a big God at work in this book, in his world. What's he up to with Jonah? What's the point of these appointments? Well, God uses things that have no will, at least in Jonah here to expose the rebel will of Jonah. He certainly can use people too, but he uses things without a will to expose to Jonah his rebellious will and to rescue and deliver Jonah from his rebellious heart. One writer made a similar list of these um, evidences of sovereignty and then concluded, the Lord has more ways of confronting me than I have ways of evading him. So all this sovereignty is aimed at mercifully saving Jonah from himself. So Yahweh's not only on mission for the merciless pagan Ninevites, he's also on mission to save his prophet from his own merciless, self-righteous heart. And that point is made really clear in the book by way of some really interesting irony. So second point, let's look at some irony in this book. It's all over the place. We won't see it all. I won't point, point it all out, but you can look for it on your own as you read it more. Um, so look at 1 6. The captain says, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise. Who else said arise? God did in 1 2, chapter 1, verse 2. So it's kind of ironic that the pagan captain is calling Jonah, the prophet of God, to arise and arise to call out to Yahweh, like what he should be doing. And then in the same verse, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Yes, indeed, perhaps. So the irony is really thick here because like at more than one level, the reason Jonah is even on this boat is because God was concerned about 120 Ninevite pagans that they not perish. First, Jonah rejects that and runs, and so in God's providence, again, this wild encounter with Jonah will lead to these pagan mariners worshiping Yahweh and not perishing. Do you see it? So the pagan mariner is more of a spokesman for Yahweh than Jonah is. There's like lots of irony here. It's funny, the only one who doesn't seem to care about people perishing is Jonah, Sad irony, isn't it? The one who's supposed to be preaching precisely for that reason is the only one that doesn't seem to be care doesn't seem to care about people perishing. More irony. Look at verse 9 of chapter 1. I'm a Hebrew. I fear, I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea, and dry land. Uh, really? You you fear him? And he made the sea, and you're trying to cross the sea to get away from him? Kind of ironic. If you look, it's especially ironic in light of verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid. Literally, they feared a great fear and said to him, what is this that you've done? They realized that they were dealing with a real God, not a local deity. So they fear Yahweh more than Jonah does. You see the same thing in verses 14 to 16, or even more so. They feared Yahweh exceedingly after the sea ceased from its raging when they threw Jonah in. So how about another bit of irony? How about Jonah's repentance? What do you think of it? Have you ever wrestled with this? Like, is this real repentance? How about the Ninevites' repentance? Should we compare those two potentially? Jonah's repentance with the Ninevites' repentance. Look at it. Chapter 2, look at verse 4. We'll look at Jonah's first. Then I said, he's praying here. The fish was a rescue mission, so he's thanking God for the fish. He's praying here. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. That sounds a little fishy, doesn't it? Sorry for the terrible pun. I am driven away from your sight? Look at 2, 8, and 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Oh, maybe he read Tim Keller, you know, counterfeit gods, and he's like coming to terms with his heart idolatry. But look at verse 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I... Wait. Has he really come to terms with... What's going on in his heart? But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. <sniffs> Smells a little fishy. Now compare that to the repentance of the Ninevites. Look at three five. The people of Nineveh, when, when he calls out, yet 40 days, Nineveh should be overthrown. The first word in the Hebrew sentence is believed. It's front-loaded for emphasis. Boom, they believed it people of Nineveh believe God. They called for a fast. They're mourning over their sin. blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So the irony is that it seems like these people, even the pagan king of Nineveh, is responding more righteously to the word of God than Jonah. They own their evil and their violence. They know they have no claim on Yahweh. He says, perhaps the God will have mercy. Jonah doesn't acknowledge any wrongdoing. It's almost like the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Last instance of irony that I'll point out, though, again, there's more. Did you notice Jonah's exceeding displeasure, his anger in 4.1? See that? And then his exceeding gladness in 4.6. So, 4.1, when God relents from the disaster, it was evil, in the eyes of Jonah, and he burned with anger. And then he gets this plant covering his head to save him from his, it's actually the same word for evil, discomfort, and he's exceedingly glad. Those seem like opposite responses, don't they? Anger and gladness. Actually, it's the same ugly root underneath both responses. So here's the irony. Jonah is upset about the application of the merciful character of God on behalf of these Assyrians. And yet it is that very mercy that keeps God from destroying Jonah. It's why God rescues Jonah rather than destroying Jonah. So he is self-righteously, selfishly angry that God relents and he's really happy because he cares more about his own comfort than the comfort of 120,000 people that don't know the right hand from their left. You see? And so he's totally fine with mercy for him. He's not fine with mercy for them. And he's blind to the fact that he's like this living parable. Jonah didn't want God to be merciful to the merciless Ninevites but he's blind to the fact that God was merciful to the merciless prophet. If God was not merciful and slow to anger, Jonah would have been toast. So Jonah is having to call on God to rescue him, you know, with with the fish, because he's unwilling to go and call out against those God wanted to rescue. So he wants something for himself that he is unwilling to extend others. So hypocritical, it's ironic, all of that. If God deals with sinners the way Jonah wants him to deal with the Ninevites, then Jonah ends up drowning and destroyed. So do you see how this irony has a point? It's this creative way to sharpen the point of this book in order that the lesson really is driven home. So irony in the service of God's sovereign mercy on mission to the merciless. So third point, mercy, and it's mercy to the merciless. God's mercy, Jonah's merciless heart. So you remember what a foil is? High school literature class, remember? Anybody, anybody? One. Okay. So in fiction, a foil is a character who contrasts with another character, usually the protagonist, in order to highlight particular qualities of the other character. So this isn't fiction, but Jonah's merciless heart is the foil, the opposite, the contrast to the merciful heart of God. So Jonah probably balked at preaching to the Ninevites for a combination of reasons, right? So they were a brutal, evil people. They were known to do crazy things like skin their enemies alive, They were merciless and cruel. Jonah didn't want God to be merciful to them. He wanted them to get what they deserved. He wanted them to get justice, judgment. And before we blow by this, we need to feel it a little bit deeper. Perhaps this can help. In in 2001, 26-year-old Malik Mumtaz Qadri assassinated Salman Tassir, the then governor of the Punjab province in Pakistan. Tassir was a moderate, opposed to Muslim extremism, Cadre Qadri believed he was defending the honor of Muhammad by his actions. He killed Tassir by shooting him over 20 times in the back. Bang! 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 I mean, just 20 times. Can you imagine? And then can you imagine that he didn't feel any remorse or regret or guilt. He celebrated it. He was defiant, and others supported him, treated him like a hero. And then let's say you actually identified with this here. Maybe, what if you were a longtime friend of the family? And then imagine God comes to you and tells you to go preach the gospel to Kadri in prison. Maybe that helps us understand a little bit better how Jonah would feel about going to the Ninevites. But that, if this book means anything, that doesn't justify or excuse his merciless heart. So look at how Jonah tips his hand in chapter 4, verse 2. Here's how he really felt. This is why he didn't go. He was afraid that God would be merciful to them. Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? So, we see that Jonah's heart was just as merciless, looked more religious, looked looked a little better, but down at the roots, it's just as merciless as as the Ninevites. So, if someone pushed another person in front of an oncoming train, you know that person is merciless and cruel. But if there was an oncoming train bearing down on someone, and you just watched when you could have gotten them out of the way, what does that say about your heart? So I think that's one of the reasons Jonah is in the Bible, to show us our hidden merciless hearts. We are Jonah. We can so easily become people haters. We may not perpetrate any physical violence, but man, we judge and snub and slander and gossip and dismiss. What if God dealt with us like that? What if he was as merciless to us as we are to others. We'd be toast. I read Jonah and I think of, imagine imagine a Christian couple where the husband commits adultery and then he repents and the church rallies around them and and they rejoice to see this change in him and he starts growing like a weed and even ends up like ministering to others and being a blessing in so many ways, can you imagine how the heart of that wife could get bitter and resentful and almost wish that he hadn't ever repented? You see how scandalous grace is? It's a stumbling block. Sometimes we need stuff to kick up what's actually in there. So how many times have you ever said this about somebody else, serves him right, Have you ever secretly delighted in the downfall or stumbling of someone that you dislike or are jealous of? Do you hate your boss or anybody at work? Maybe an extended family member, your neighbor. You just wish they would move. The last thing you want to do is go try to tell them about Jesus. This is a parable, not because it's, a story that's untrue. It's parabolic because it's for you and me. It's a parable of our, I say this in a measured, careful way, our damn indifference. Indifference is damnable, it's ugly. Do you see yours? Jonah is more concerned about his own kind of physical comfort at one point than the well-being of 120,000 people. Do you, you see yourself in that at all? Like, oh, God, mercy. So we're supposed to see the mercilessness that can be present in our hearts, but not just see that. We also need to see the great, mighty, merciful heart of God in this book. So it's all over the place, and I need to hurry. <laughs> um, just a couple places here. 4-4. Four, four. So when when Rose is, or when Jonah is so angry, like you feel the weight of these words, you go, oh, he's talking to God like this. How would you have responded if you were God? In verse 4. And Yahweh said, who do you think you are? Like, can, can you imagine what? Do you do well to be angry? It's unbelievable. And then 4.9, it's better for me to die than to live because of what you're doing here. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Like it's, his mercy with this self-righteous, cold-hearted, merciless prophet is amazing. It's just like the heart of the father in Luke 15 with that older brother who did not go into the party. He dishonored the father by not going into the party. That older son deserved to be beaten for the way he treated the father. And instead of doing that, what did the father do? He went out and appealed to the son. It's the same thing going on right here. So if anybody has a right to anger, it's God, and he's slow to anger. This book is this little mirror for us to see what's in our hearts. It's not pretty, but we see God's heart, and that is beautiful, especially if we pour contempt on our pride. So, Jonah rebels against the word of God, runs from his enemies, but the heart of God most beautifully, fully, finally revealed in Jesus. Jesus obeyed the word of his father and ran toward his enemies to save us. Jonah resented and resisted the mercy of God, right? Jesus delighted in and embodied the mercy of God. Jonah sought self-protection rather than care for the perishing. Jesus willingly perished in self-sacrifice to rescue the perishing. Jonah's heart was as merciless at the core as the Ninevites. Jesus's heart is so full of mercy that he died not only to rescue merciless pagans, but merciless Pharisees. So if you see some Jonah-like heart in you, repent. And you can see how this then sets up what we're going to consider at the seminar after lunch. The mission of mercy that God is on and he wants us to join him on it. We'll just do this really quick. Do you see the sovereign mercy of God on mission to the merciless? It's all over the place. We see our hearts, they're merciless. We see the need in the world around us, so much cruelty and injustice, and God is on mission to pour out his mercy. So, did you notice how, how abrupt the ending in this book is? We'll just end with this. Why do you think maybe that it ended that way? So, like, well, isn't there like a concluding paragraph, or what, what's the deal? Did it get cut off? No. Think about it this way. Imagine, I mean, this this book is cinematic, right? So cinematic clarity, we've seen our proneness to rebel, merciless hearts. We've seen the might and merciful heart of God on mission toward the merciless. And then finally, at the end of the story, the camera turns and pans to you, to me. It turns away from this story and it stops on you. And basically, the question is, will mercy triumph over judgment in your heart? Will you hold on to a Jonah-like heart, or will you embrace God's heart of mercy? So we leave that hanging, just like God did. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing one song, and we'll head down for lunch. God, we praise you because you are Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And you have revealed that over and over and over again, and you finally and fully revealed that amazing mercy through your Son, Lord Jesus. And so we thank you that you died for and paid for the cold, self-righteous, selfish, comfort-loving hearts that so oftentimes characterize us. And we pray that we would see your great merciful heart and that it would just fill us and, and free us and transform us, that in view of your mercies, we would offer our lives as a living sacrifice and be on mission with you to give your mercy to all of our neighbors, and even our enemies. In Jesus' name, amen.